kind of as I said earlier on, if you have ambiguity in a rule set, I consider that the fault of the designer. If you have a situation where you want to make a certain list and other people are going to look at you like you've got something on your shoe because you've done something wrong, that is also the fault of the designer. What happens when you're inspired by movies like Dark Crystal or Labyrinth and you combine that with innovative mechanics all into a skirmish game that takes less than two hours to play? Well, you end up with Moonstone. I sit down with Tom Greenway and we talk about his skirmish game, Moonstone. We piece together how he came up with all of the innovative mechanics as well as the very unique world. Stick around to the end because I tease out some of the plans that he has for the game and for the setting. Anyway, sit back, relax, and listen to my time with Tom and the game Moonstone. Enjoy. Third Floor Wars delivers interviews, insights, and discussions about everything hitting the tabletop. Rule books, plastic models, dice, and cards in hand. Let the gaming begin. Tabletop games let you escape and unleash grand battles and regale epic tales of adventure with your friends. If you love gaming and learning from players, designers, experts, and creators, you are in the right place. Pull up a chair. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk Podcast. Howdy friends, Craig here. Today we're talking to Tom Greenway, who's probably best known for his skirmish miniature game, Moonstone. If you have not seen this, it has incredibly found its own space in a very crowded field, and it's got a very unique look and feel and mechanics, and I'm anxious to talk about it. So Tom, welcome to the third floor. Thank you, Craig. It's great to be here. So you, you unfortunately have to give your origin story, which are a choir of all new guests. So at some point in time, you had no idea you could roll dice and flip cards and push models around, and then you saw it. So what was the day that you were first exposed to tabletop gaming? So I remember it very well. This might be a familiar story for a lot of um, UK-based uh, listeners, but um, I was uh, lured into the Games Workshop marketing machine with treats and candies at a very young age. Um, I was six years old. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, very young. So okay, it's, it's a long, well, longish story. I had a game. I loved castles and knights and fantasy and all I had books full of dragons and books full of goblins. I loved all that stuff. And I had a game where um, you flicked little balls at a, like a brick wall of plastic that you built and you had to try and knock down as many of the bricks as possible. Uh, it's a game that I played and I really wanted it for my birthday. Uh, and I got my parents to take me to Toys R Us to try and buy this game. I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, and my mum said, oh, why don't we go to Games Workshop? I hear they do things like that. <laughs> so uh, so when I, when I walked, you know, all like bright-eyed and naive and, and, and ripe for the plucking, uh, and a, a, a fabulously friendly red shirt, uh, as we call them, um, you know, did his job beautifully. He, he drew me over to this absolutely beautiful Warhammer Fantasy Battle table where some, you know, really old kids who were probably about 11 were halfway sure. through a demo game. 
And I'd obviously explained that I wanted this catapult game to knock down walls. And he was like, oh, this is the perfect game for you. Because there just happened to be like a castle wall uh, on this battlefield with some empire halberdiers on the top of it. And he put me in charge. I wasn't trusted with any of the real troops, but he put me in charge of the catapult right at the back um, and said, oh, it's your job to knock down the walls. I'm pretty sure there aren't actually any rules for knocking down the walls. No. Uh, I'm pretty sure he made every single part of it up. Every single time, because you had to guess the distance in inches. And of course, I didn't even know what an inch was when I was six years old. Sure. So every time he was like, oh, yeah, you scored a hit. You know, <laughs> two more hits for me, I'll be knocked down or some like absolute rubbish. It, it, it didn't oh, matter. I was hooked. Just this visual image of these armies on this battlefield. It was so beautiful. And of course, I bought the starter set, and he was very happy because he got his commission. Uh, yeah. And I took it home, and I tried to read the rule book, and I had absolutely no idea what all these words and numbers meant. Not a clue. But fortunately, I had a very um, generous older brother who could read the rules and understood exactly what was going on, but he didn't exactly play fair. He pitted my... 20 goblin spearmen against his uh, 20 uh, demons of corn and of course i lost every single game and i had no idea why i was so bad at this game um, oh but that's hilarious I, I loved it anyway um so, so that was my first yeah that, that was my first exposure but i, I didn't really stick to warhammer fantasy but i got into blood bowl instead <laughs> so here's what's funny tom is I know the game you were looking for, and it's called Castles and Catapults. Ah, oh, that's and, the one. Yeah, and, exactly and I don't, want, I don't want to rub your nose in it, but I had that game. Oh, <laughs> it's the silliest game that I had so much fun as a kid playing, but yeah, both sides, you had little catapults and you literally exactly catapulted the little balls. Yeah. Yep. yeah, little elastic bands. And, oh God, I'll have to get a copy of that game. I've got a... It's a collector's item. Yeah, very coveted game, um, and a lot cheaper than than Warhammer Fantasy. I should have stuck to that. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine how much money I would have saved. <laughs> no kidding. So you ended up finding Blood Bowl after that? Yeah, so a little older now. Um, fast forward after being trounced by my brother for about three or four years at, at Warhammer Fantasy. I was about 11, and I was bought a copy of Blood Bowl, and he was playing it with his friends. He He... He was probably about 18 by that point, older than me, and they were playing it. And I was always like, let me play, let me play. And eventually they bought me a set. And um, I still play Blood Bowl to this day. I still have a real soft spot for that game. Um, so I played that, you know, just with my family. Uh, and then as I moved into my teens, I uh, started joining gaming groups at the local school and dabbled in RPGs, did a bit of Vampire the Masquerade and Werewolf nice. and that kind of thing. Um, got into Magic the Gathering. Um, still like that game. Um, still think there's a lot of cool things about that. In very, yeah, it is. And I used to read a lot um, of Mark. Is it Mark Rosewater or Mark Rosewood, the, the lead designer uh, of Magic the Gathering? I think that's, uh, yeah, I, I don't remember. He might have moved on now anyway. It's a while ago. But for a, even though he must have been incredibly busy um, creating, being the lead designer for Magic the Gathering, he used to put out weekly articles on their website, and I used to absolutely lap them up, just absorbing everything about the design process that he was going through. And I was so impressed by the amount of effort and thought that they went into 
So, you know, these are some of the games that still have like a real soft spot in my heart. Yeah. Um, Warhammer Fantasy, I love the way it looks. I think it's beautiful when you see all of the terrain and fully painted armies. I did actually paint um, two full, complete 2,000-odd wow. point armies which must have taken hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours, but I didn't like the game. <laughs> I probably only ever played it about six times as an adult. I just was like, hmm, yeah, it looks great, but it's, it's, it wasn't for me. You know, I yeah. know there's a lot of people who absolutely adore it, but but I love the aesthetic, but not so much the gameplay. Um, and it's a huge commitment to paint armies. And it is. I guess as I moved into my 20s, you know, I... I um, I, I took a brief hiatus, probably not as long as a lot of people, but from sort of 18 to 22, I, you know, nightclubs and girls, <laughs> you know, familiar story, I'm sure. Yeah. But then I, I guess about um, as I moved into my kind of mid-20s, uh, a friend of mine um, kind of that I used to game with sent me some pictures uh, and it was Malifaux models nice like hmm okay these are pretty awesome maybe i could dabble again um and and that was what pulled me back into the hobby um and i yeah i i loved it i got into malifaux first edition um it just you know not big not big time it was just really me and two or three friends playing but you know i collected the whole of the reses faction and painted them up and had a great time um and i think i realized that you know, skirmish games are my jam. You know, from then on, yeah. I never really looked back at uh, a full-scale army game. You know, I, I dabble a bit in, in board games and, and things like that, but uh, skirmish games are, for me, kind of the, you know, they're the pinnacle of, of what I enjoy playing and painting, um, particularly the painting side of things, because yeah. Um, you can when you've only got six models or eight models or whatever, you can really, really put the time and effort into it. And and you know, I my painting improved so much when I yeah. kind of focused on skirmish games instead of army scale games. Um, and it still continues to improve. Um, I do a fair amount of the. I'm doing bunny ears, um, which you can't see, but um, the studio paint jobs for Moonstone. Um, Mostly because I'm I'm not quite rich enough to pay for every single model <laughs> painted by a professional, but knowing sure. that <laughs> knowing that my paint jobs are going to be blown up on people's thirty-two inch monitors at probably five times the size that, that they actually are makes you incredibly careful. You know, if you slip a bit painting an eyeball, you're not going to accept that. You know, you're going to do it again, and that's you know some of that stuff has, has pushed my painting on, which has been great. I've really enjoyed. That's great. Um, you know, pushing it on that side of things. So you mentioned a love of, of skirmish games and you mentioned Malifaux first edition. Is there other skirmish games that uh, miniature games that you uh, dabbled with? Yeah, definitely. Um, I got into Guild Ball again on the nice. first edition. Um, still, you know, love, you know, Malifaux, Guild Ball and Bushido. Um, these oh, for me, yeah. are these are great games. These are really, really well written games. Um, and I've, you know, I, really enjoyed playing all of them to be honest not so much on Bushido not because it's not brilliant but because uh, by the time I was kind of discovering it I was also in the process of writing Moonstone and Moonstone was now right. taking all of my um, 
sort of time and, and gaming uh, you know, playtest time became such a, a big factor of my gaming that it didn't get as much play time as, as I might have liked otherwise. But I've heard so many good things about Bushido um, and I've read the rule book and it, it looks like just a brilliant game. Um, I just, it, it's kind of like you, I just don't have time, um, but I've heard it's excellent. Yeah, I, I was very impressed with the rules and the miniatures. Um, you know, the whole package I thought was thought was great. And I know it's a, another small, smallish company. You know, it's um, it's you know equivalent to Moonstone, maybe a bit bit further along, a few years further along. But you know, I I love a game that's got something unique and innovative about it, and I think yeah. all of these games do. Um, and um, they've all got completely unique aesthetics as well, which is which is great. Yep. And and I think Moon- well, it allows you to play. It allows you to eliminate overlap, right? You can find joy in them um, because the uh, each one is unique enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's enough similarity that you can kind of hit the ground running, but then enough difference that it that it feels fresh. And and I, yep. I kind of wanted to pitch yep. Moonstone in in amongst that same group in a way you know a completely unique aesthetic some similarities of gameplay but then some areas where it goes off and kind of does its own unique thing well i am super excited to talk about it because uh it was actually one of my patreons that uh reached out to me and says hey have you talked to tom greenway yet about uh about moonstone and i i, I hate to say it but I, I didn't know about your game um i said you know let me poke around let me take a look at this and uh everybody's going to enjoy this interview because it's stunning uh it's stunning how unique it is and how pretty it is and i'm really anxious to gronk on the uh the mechanics so the insider insight series is my opportunity to sit down with designers developers artists writers and creators and learn how they approach their work. I try to understand their process, inspiration, and methods for crafting their creations. And that's what we're going to do with Tom today. We're going to try to understand uh, what is Moonstone and uh, why maybe we should all be playing it. We'll be right back. There are so many online retailers. It can be hard to find one that is trustworthy, has great prices, along with some reliable customer service. On the third floor, we love ordering our gaming goodies from Gadzooks Gaming. Their selection of terrain, miniatures, dice, custom decor, and conversion bits are curated for gamers by gamers. You'll find they have what you need and what you didn't know you needed to take your gaming fun to the next level. If you mention Third Floor Wars in the cart notes of your order, you'll also get a free gift and you'll help support the podcast. Check out gadzooksgaming.com and mention Third Floor Wars on checkout to get that free gift. So like everybody that's listening here, we, you know, we play games, uh, Tom, but there's just some people that don't just play games. At some point, there's people like you who say, you know what, I'm going to change this or meddle with this or I have an idea. So if we're going to forensically go back in history and if I were to look at all of your notebooks and everything, where would I find the, the first seeds of Moonstone? Yeah. So again, long story. So I... Uh, have been making games um, for a very long time. Um, in those teenage years, 
I um I made up games. I, I I was into Blood Bowl, but I was also into ice hockey. So I made an ice hockey variant of it. It wasn't very good. It was terrible. Nice. I mean, it was it, the book, rule book was a brick. It was my first attempt, and it was rubbish. Um, but you know, um, I made uh, like a, a fancy wrestling game back in those days, and my friends really enjoyed it. I'd get them to play it. They they enjoyed it. You know, it it was. You know, it's probably rubbish, but it was good enough at the time. <laughs> um, I made up a game called Cult where I was, so I, I was really into Magic the Gathering and I really hated it when you got uh, Mana Flood and Mana Screw. And I was like, oh, I can solve this by, uh, instead of having the lands in your hand, you play the lands on the table in the first place and that forms like a cityscape and you're positioning your uh, your characters on top of them and moving them around. Oh, I've solved nice. that problem. Uh, and I built kind of a post-apocalyptic um, cityscape cult kind of aesthetic around that game. And, of course, back in these days, there was never any image in my mind, any, any idea that I could actually publish these things. It seemed right. impossible to be far-fetched. Um, but I had fun doing it. You know, I grabbed the images off the internet for free, and I printed them out, and I roped a few people into playing them with me, and I had a great time. And with every new game, I kind of, you know, I guess improved the the skills to a certain extent, um, and then I I've mentioned that I was into Blood Bowl. I got quite active in the uh, online community in I guess the early two thousands when there was a big community drive. Games which were to dump the game basically, right? Uh, and the community was pulling together to make it better, um, pr- principally focused on league play because the league rules that had been printed, um, ultimately, every Blood Bowl league, like a lot of the Games Workshop campaign games, would collapse after a fairly small amount of time because it had win more mechanics. Like, the more you won, the more gold you got, the more skills you got. If you were already the best player uh, and and you've now got all these great advantages and you're playing someone who was already losing their games and now they've only got three players left and no skills, they don't want to play anymore. Uh, yep. And the game dies out. So I was part of this community that was working together to solve that puzzle, basically solve that problem, make a campaign system that would uh, be perpetual, that you could go into each of your games feeling reasonably like you had a chance of winning. Um, so that was good fun. I worked on that. I ran a little um, league in Bristol, my home city, Um being one of the playtesters, I wouldn't say I was a was one of the designers. I chipped in ideas, but there was a right a design team. Some of them made it through, which is all really cool. Like when it was in, cool. I was like, oh, I, I came up with that little one idea there, that one rule that I, I suggested. That uh, that's about the extent of it. But it, you know, again, it was furthering the kind of amateur design process. I think it's one of the really awesome things about tabletop gaming as opposed to computer gaming is you have so much creative freedom. If you don't like an aspect of a game, uh, you can just rewrite that aspect as long as you can convince your friends that your version is better. Uh, Yeah, I agree. And and that's true of miniature games. It's true of role-playing games. Um, And less so with board games. There's something unique about role-playing games and tabletop miniature games that seem to somehow give us that permission. Yeah. So, so, and obviously the the visual and artistic side of it as well, getting to um, paint and like add, you know, modify your models. I love that creativity that you get in tabletop gaming. Yeah. 
I guess the next step in my evolution was a friend of mine, uh, a, a longtime friend, had started writing a game of his own. Um, and this was essentially his attempt at a better version of Necromunda. Um, it was a, a sci-fi world. He was a, a really good um, creative writer. So he'd written a really in-depth um, uh, world, uh, sci-fi world, but he wasn't as hot on the rule side of things. He'd come up with some right. cool mechanics, but I worked with him to write the rule book, um, which was like a self-published uh, book. We put it on a um, mini, uh, not mini vault, um, one of these places where you can download a PDF and contribute some money to the, to the writers. Um, it didn't make uh, much impact on the world. We didn't have any budget for art. You know, uh, it was his baby, sure. not mine. Uh, it, and, uh, you know, I just wrote the rules or helped out with the rules. Um, but in the process of working on this, I started to think, hmm, your game is good. I'm enjoying it. But if this was my game, I would want to do this. I'd want to take a little bit from Malifaux and a little bit from Magic the Gathering and a little bit from Poker. Right. And I would want my game to be set in a, a fairy tale world that looks like some of the um, artists that I love, like Brian Froud, who's the art director for The Labyrinth, and Paul yep. Bonner and Arthur Rackham and, and these kind of... Um, uh, these really whimsical kind of art styles. I I would set my world like that because that's what I particularly love in a, you know in in a visual setting. And then I want a melee system. This one of the um, I will just backtrack a bit. Another um, seed was playing Malifaux. Yeah, so I loved Malifaux. I thought it was great. I thought it was incredibly innovative. The alternating activations, the small model count thought all of this was brilliant but one area where i i was told this is a game that uses cards and i thought oh cool a game that uses cards but when i played it and i'm probably on thin ice here with you know i don't want to alienate the the, the listener base um but i i thought the card mechanic didn't push cards as far as it could have done that's fair when you're flipping a card you're randomizing a number Mm -hmm. It's a number from one to thirteen instead of you know one to ten or whatever, and there I know I appreciate there are some extra layers to it because obviously with a card deck you can uh, it's not totally random every time you can make estimated guesses based on what's been before, but you are basically generating a random number, uh, a lot like rolling a dice, and like a lot of other games that I played, you when it's your turn to attack, the other person is fairly static. And you are going chop, chop, chop. And then it's their turn to hit you back and you're fairly static and they're going chop, chop, chop. And one of my other hobbies outside of tabletop gaming is HEMA, Historical European oh, wow. Arts. Yeah. So I've been training with swords, obviously blunt swords, um, and daggers and boarding axes and sabers and spears and round shields and... Um, all these kinds of weapons in a in a full speed competitive format. You know, you're you're wearing enough body armor um, that you don't kill one another, and the weapons are blunt. But you are you are right. properly fighting, and there are judges in tournaments that will score you. Yeah. And none of the games that I played had the feel that yeah. I felt when I was really fighting somebody with a sword, because when you're really fighting, 
you're you're at risk. If you if you've got matched weapons and you go in for an attack, they can strike you back, and you can um, you can play very defensively. You can go. I'm just gonna. Um, I'm I'm not gonna expose myself. I'm gonna defend heavily. Or you can go. You know, all out and go for that murder strike. But you may well get hit back. Um, and the there's. But you, you maybe when you're doing Hema, you're trying to sell a move. You're trying to like pretend you're cutting from above to make them do a defense, and then you kind of move underneath. This kind of back and forth, reading your opponent, intuitive um, combat style, I couldn't find in any game. Yeah, that, that that ebb and flow rhythm of of any type of martial art like that. Yeah, it's very true. I mean, in in all miniature games that I've come across, and this might be changing here in a second. You, you, it is my turn, your turn, my turn, your turn. Even if it's yeah. broken down into segments, the way Malifaux is with alternating activations. You you're right. You don't have that same sense of ebb and flow. I agree. And, and it was a challenge that I that kind of the seed was planted playing Malifaux, but I didn't solve it until a few quite a few years later. But I thought. I can use cards. I can use a card game um, where, which is simultaneous, essentially. Yeah. So maybe we'll go more into that later on. But um, it, you know, these seeds were planted in my mind to, to to experiment with some of these kinds of ideas at some point when I got round to it. And as I was working on my friend's game, I was thinking, oh, maybe this is the you know the, my juices were going. I was like, oh, if this was my game, I would I would read yeah. some of those ideas. Um, I also wanted it to be a two to four player game, two, three or four player, because I was playing, um, what was I playing? Uh, game of Thrones card game at the time mm-hmm. um, with a group of friends. And sometimes there'd be two of us, sometimes three of us, four of us. And I loved that, just turning up and yeah. knowing that the game could could flex. So there was a few kind of things I had in my mind that would make my perfect game. I love list building in CCGs. I was like, okay, so I want some of that. I want to make sure that there's combos and, and the ability to kind of drop new characters in and new sets that come out that kind of shake up the meta all the time and counters to every every card or in this case, every model. Um, right. I wanted the game to have a really tight rule set because I can't stand games where there's ambiguity. Um, yeah. If I don't know what's supposed to happen and I can't find it in the rule book, I consider that a fault of the game. I don't I like it. I just find it a negative play experience when you and your opponent are having to take a five, 10 minute break to disagree and you end up rolling a dice or whatever. I think that's the fault of the game designer, to be honest. Um, so I wanted to make sure that wasn't a factor in Moonstone as well. Um, and yeah, I, one other thing that I wanted to get in there um, when I was playing Guild Ball. I used to um, randomly generate terrain on the board. I would hold some dice above the table and I would uh, release my hand and the dice would scatter around the table and I had a little chart that said number four is, you know, fast ground and um, number three is an obstacle. And I'd swap the dice for terrain to to have a different set of terrain every time I played. And it was really fun. And I yeah. thought, actually, this could be quite a good mechanic for setting game objectives. 
because it's kind of like reading the runes. You drop the dice and you peer over the table and you and you're like, oh, that's oh, I want to be, I want to be on that. And you're planning out your strategy, and it makes it different every single time. Yeah. So, so I had all these things like whirling around in my head, like, oh, my perfect game would have this, and my perfect game would have that. And I thought, well, why don't I just write it? That, that's fascinating to me, Tom. So, I mean, it, it's a situation where it sounds like you got a taste for blood helping your buddy out. Um, and it sounds like it, it gave you, again, permission where you're like, you know what? Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do this. And and then you just start piecing together all these wild ideas. So I would be curious if I were to go back and look at the earliest played version of Moonstone, what are some key things that were there from the very beginning that are there if I were to play Moonstone now? Quite a lot. Um, obviously, a lot of things changed. I, right. I, I feel quite strongly that um, you need to be quite harsh. Like if something isn't contributing to the game and improving the game, just cut it out. Save it yep. in your big book of ideas and use it in the next game. Um, cause you can recycle, you know, you can recycle in that way, but you, I think some people, um, can get very wedded to any kind of creative, anything creative that they've made. Um, yeah. and, and, uh, you have to be a bit savage in my day job. I'm a graphic designer and I'm used to people telling me that that is no good in their mind. That's and I've it, you know, and you develop yeah. a bit of a thick skin. Um, and so there was probably more in the first version. I remember the melee system um, was more complicated. Uh, it had extra different kinds of attacks and there was different kinds of modes. And I just thought it doesn't need it. Um, yep. Maybe to someone that's played the game uh, for a year, they will appreciate these extra options and depth, but someone that's learning the game is going to be overwhelmed. So just kill it. There's enough depth yep. in in the in the simplified version. Um, the moonstones I remember were D sixes instead of D fours. Uh, at the moment, you win the game uh, at the end of turn four. Whoever's holding the most moonstones is the winner. In the original version, there was no turn limit. It, you just was the first person to get four. There was a whole load of minor tweaks, but the kind of the guts of the game was was the same. Um, that's great. And so I'd be curious then, um, you know, we, we see, it sounds like early concepts held that, 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 that the bulk of the heavy lifting happened early and then there was tweaking that happened along the way. I'd be curious if there's something that was in the game for a long time, but ended up dying right at the end. So what were some of the last cuts you made before you figured it was ready for prime time? Oh God, that's a great question. Um, I'll come back to that. One thing that I would say that I was planning to cut and didn't cut is the names of the characters. So when I first um, when I first made the the kind of the playtest version, I was I couldn't not that I couldn't be bothered, but I I hadn't created the world yet, the depth, the narrative. I started on the mechanics, and I thought I'll just give these characters silly names like Baron von Fancy Hat and C Six Stew and Doug the Flatulent, and I'll I'll come back at the end once I've written some narrative or got a writer to write some narrative, and then I'll give them sensible names. And then after a while, I thought, screw it! Like I really, I've become really attached to these silly names. This is going to be these the are vibe great names. We are going <laughs> to. Um, so that's one thing that stayed. Uh, I'm trying to think what got cut at the very last minute. It's a while ago now that I was playtesting. 
Yeah. Well, think about it this way, Tom, and, and, and there may not be an answer to this question, but um, what I'm finding as I'm talking to designers is that often there is something, and sometimes it can be very small, that, that just kind of plagues you, right? As you're playing and you're going through these iterations and this isn't working really right and I'll tweak it here, tweak it there. And then I'm finding that, you know, one of the last versions of it, they said, you know what, I'm just going to throw this out and see what it's like. And all of a sudden it all comes together. Um, and I'm wondering if there was a, there was a, a Eureka towards the end of the process that, that, that and in its own way told you the game's ready. I think I felt the game was ready. I, I had some really great playtesters. I was just lucky to have friends who were really awesome gamers who, who could break every single thing that was broken. Um, I think I knew it was ready when they stopped breaking my bloody game <laughs> and we could just get nice. through a game without, you know, because they would find every little thing and they would be relentless. If, if there was anything that could be exploited, it would be exploited. And when I could get to the end of a game and not have to rewrite the cards and rewrite the rules because something had been broken that game, I thought, okay, it's, it's, time, to, it's time to publish now because you can tweak forever, you know. There's still things about the game to this day that, you know, after a few years of it being out in the market, I think, no, maybe I would have done that slightly differently. But nothing, nothing too uh, awful, thanks to the great playtesters that um, made my life hell at the time, but did a great job in the long run. How did how did it, how was it made available to the public first, um, Tom? So when people bought bought not playtested bought Moonstone for the first time, how how did they get their hands on it? So um, I put the game out for free as a PDF for a few months um, and uh, it was played by enough strangers that I thought, okay, there's some market for this. Uh, and then I went to Kickstarter. So yeah. uh, around four five years ago was a, a golden era for indie gamers uh, trying to self-publish because Games Workshop were doing a diabolical job of everything um, and yep. um, Kickstarter, you know, was becoming on everyone's radar. It was probably at its peak popularity. I'm not, I'm not sure if that's true, but I felt like it was true. I thought, you know what? I could actually make this happen. Um, I invested quite a bit in, in artwork because when I was working on my friend's game, nobody paid any attention because it didn't have good yeah. art. So I thought, right, I'll set aside a little bit of money uh, as much as I can afford to lose and spend it all on art and sculpts, get like the prettiest things that I can, like get the best sculptors I can find. And I actually ran a, um, a pilot Kickstarter just for one model, um, which I stretched gold up to two just to wow. kind of get a feel for how to run a Kickstarter, see if there's a market, you know, um, you go through the process of making a miniature, uh, and that was a huge success. That made a lot, I mean, a lot more money than I thought. It was. It made £5,000. But the, for one wow. model, for a complete nobody, I thought, okay, that's pretty good validation that maybe I can actually do the whole game. So I came back to Kickstarter pretty soon afterwards. Didn't take long to get that one model out to people um, with the game. Uh, here's the rules. They're free. Uh, here's all the art for all the characters. But I need, you know whatever it was, £10,000 to pay for the sculpting and the mold making. Yeah. Um, and it, it went it went very well. I think it raised 60000 at Kickstarter and then another 20000 nice. um back a kit and all of that. So um, that well exceeded my 
my uh, my hopes at the time. And I've not really looked back since. It's been been a busy, That's amazing. busy time. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. So once after the Kickstarter is out, uh, Tom, and it gets into people's hands, you've done your fulfillment, um, then you start hearing the reviews, right? People start posting about it and what their game experiences are. People make videos about it and discuss it on forums. I'd be curious, uh, was there some reactions once it got out to the larger group that surprised you either surprised you in a, wow, I never thought about that. Or wow, that's a aspect of the game. I hadn't realized would have that much of an impact. Um, what surprised you to the, re- uh, about the reactions? I was overwhelmingly relieved by the reactions. You know, um, I was very nervous. Um, the, the, the mechanics in this game are new. I'm not aware of any, game with exactly these mechanics or anything particularly similar i was really nervous people wouldn't get it um i was so relieved when i started getting all these positive reviews flooding in and people saying it was easy to learn um that's great it was um it was such a pleasant experience seeing like people playing it and enjoying it Uh, another thing where moonstone has fairies and I stuck yeah. with guns on that. I was like, no, I want them to, I want, the, I want fairies in this game. Um, and a lot of people prior to the Kickstarter were saying to me, people won't like it. Um, you know, no other game has ever done fairies. Um, people won't like fairies. And I was like, I don't care. I'm doing it anyway. I think they're cool. I'm just going to do it. And there was definitely some challenges around the manufacture of fairies because you want them to oh, be sure. very delicate and elegant and fine but you also want them to be game pieces that are going to be easy to assemble and and you know, not yep. break and there was a really fine line in the design uh process like how much can i push the, the thin limbs and things and 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 also fairies are by nature i wanted the miniatures to be as small as possible but i didn't want them to look yep. like, really unimpressive on the tabletop so the artwork was just fairies, but when I came to doing the design process and having them made into models, they've all got like these scenic bases, so they're hanging off trees and leaping off trees right. and on giant mushrooms and things like that, so they look a bit bigger. So there was a lot of challenges um, all around, like both the mechanics, are people going to get this me- these mechanics and accept it, and around the design, you know, the physical manufacturing design process that I was really nervous about. And then to... I guess to have people um, like what I put out was um, was really fantastic. I think it's still the best part of this job is when you see people yeah. uh, posting pictures of their painted miniatures, particularly if they've converted them or done something really unique, um, or seeing people post pictures of their games and when they do battle reports and you can see that the game has gone right down to the last minute and you can just read the enthusiasm um, it's been brilliant. I'm, I'm trying to give you something um, that was surprising or negative, um, so it doesn't sound like I'm just um, doing a, <laughs> a sales pitch. But I can't. And that's good, right? <laughs> that's not a bad thing. Yeah. It, it, you know what's funny is I I talked to uh, uh, Sean Sutter, um, who is uh, from uh, Metal King Studios. He put out Relic Blade. And one thing I thought was interesting in his interview, and it sounds like it happened to you, is he said one of the big things for him was when he was able to hand a printed copy over to somebody 
and then play it without him around. So not him explaining it, not him saying this is how it works or him being there when, you know, watching it happen, but have a complete stranger take his rules and effectively play the game. He said, it sounds silly, but that was a big deal. But it sounds like that to a certain degree happened to you too. Oh, it was terrifying. I was absolutely terrified. <laughs> um, you know, the, the Kickstarter had 500 backers. Uh, I couldn't wow. teach the game to all of those. Um Mm-hmm. I was really nervous until people got the copy in their hands and I started to hear the positive feedback. You know, were people going to, have I just upset 500 people? Are they all going to get this game and scratch their heads and throw it in the bin? You know, it was, it was a, you know, a frightening time, but thankfully, uh, thankfully it was all positive. I, I didn't really get um, any, you know, I've got a fantastic community. We've got the, I know the Malifaux community is really uh, like a really friendly one because I was part of it in um, first edition, although it's, I imagine it's changed a lot uh, since then. But I remember that being a really, really friendly community. And Moonstone's got that same kind of vibe. Like everybody's helping out all the time. Everybody's really positive and giving positive comments on everybody's paint jobs. You don't have people sniping or criticizing at all. Um, and I don't know why that is. I don't know why we've managed to attract such nice people. Um, but it's really yeah, it's great. funny, Tom. I, I wish I understood. I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that wished wish they understood the formula. But you're right, and it's so rare. So like I I see with Malifaux had a has a very unique non toxic atmosphere about it, right? A non toxic community. Um, another game uh, that I saw that with is Carnivale um, from TT Combat also has another similar community of, of very uh, giving and non-toxic people. And the, it sounds like you have that as well. And uh, trust me, I'm sure game companies would spend millions of dollars to discover what that is. But in my mind, it has to somehow reflect the creator, right? I mean, that's the only possible way. You can't just randomly have this pop up out of somewhere. And it's, there's either elements in how the game is created, presented, and curated by the company that has to do that. So I think to a certain degree, Tom, there's something that you have done that has attracted that type of player, which is which is a compliment. I wish I knew what it was. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I've just been lucky, but I think I'm quite active. You know, I I, I meet people, I talk to them, I'm on WhatsApp groups with the with the players and, and, and I, you know, respond to people's questions directly. I think that helps. Um, I'm not saying that's the only reason. I do think I got very lucky as well. Well, that's that's very cool. So, guys, um, we're going to kind of go dive into Moonstone. It sounds like similar to the way that Tom designed it, where we start. We're going to start with the mechanics, and then we're going to talk about the world. So, we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, um, you're you're about to see, or technically hear, just how unique the mechanics of this game are. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. 
So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. Right now is the part of many podcasts where someone comes on, interrupts the show, and explains that you should consider paying for the content you're already getting for free. They'll go on and explain that by giving a dollar or more a month, you not only support the show, but you allow the show to grow and improve. Here on the third floor, we commit to not interrupting your episode of Tabletop Talk with such a plea. We pledge not to run a spot asking you to go to patreon.com and give a dollar or more a month. Even if there's a link in this show's description, and there is, we won't ask you to click it and become a patron. We won't spend time yammering about the benefits like early access to episodes, getting those episodes without ad breaks, or even getting a chance to play in one of Craig's RPG sessions. Anyway, enjoy this episode. We needed to clarify that we wouldn't do this type of solicitation. Hi, this is Brian. I started listening to Third Floor Wars for information and insight about my favorite miniatures game, Malifaux. But I also get great interviews with game writers, designers, and artists, as well as some fantastic role-playing sessions with some really great players. I've been supporting them on Patreon for a year and a half so far, and it has been well worth it. Time to give a quick shout-out to some of our newest patrons. A big thank you goes out to Greg Packman, Eric Conrad, Joe Root, Alan Cardinal, Raven Shadow, Richard Beach, Philip Savoy, Patrick Allen, Third, Sean P. Kelly, Jesse Ravicki, James Kahn, and Rage Quitwire. Because of you and the other 100-plus patrons, we're able to put out content on a regular basis, and we appreciate it. Um, so, Tom, you know, as you and I started discussing back and forth and started figuring out scheduling and things like that, um, and I did some poking around uh, on some videos and do a little bit of reading, and uh, I was surprised. Uh, it's It's been a while since I've said, hmm, never seen that before. Oh, look at that. <laughs> never saw that before. <laughs> it, um, it, and it, and it, it seems to work. I haven't played yet, but it just, it seems to work. So uh, there's a lot of people listening, Tom, right now that, that have never seen or heard of Moonstone. So let's start off uh, with the basics. If, if I am in love with Moonstone and I want to talk my friend into playing, what is the few things I would say to them to give them an idea of what the game is? So our little strap line is the wonderfully whimsical uh, fantasy skirmish game. So if you have played other skirmish games, then you will be quite familiar with half of this game already. Um, it works with alternating activations. We have action points, although in Moonstone it's called energy, and uh, different characters have different amounts of it. It's one of the ways that we balance all of the characters. So a giant who might have loads of wounds and do loads of damage might only have two energy because he's lumbering and slow, whereas right. a fairy that's very nimble and reactive might have five so that's one area that's slightly different but very easy to wrap your head around you're familiar with the idea of spending points right. to, to do actions during your yep. activation um where moonstone kind of starts to yeah as you've alluded to starts to become different is we have 
two mini games within a standard skirmish game format. I say a standard, but you know, there are little differences. I think Moonstone's probably a little bit more streamlined than the average um, skirmish game because I wanted to save enough mental space for these two mini games that you play within the bigger game. The first of right. these is the arcane mechanic. So when you're doing magic, um, when you're uh, and in the world of Moonstone, um, everything, including firing crossbows, healing spells, um, teleportation, everything is considered to be arcane. To them, people have been healing one another with spells and magic for thousands of years. But a, but a, um, a musket is like really crazy new magic. So it's all considered arcane to them. And it uses a, um, a custom deck of cards. It's only 21 cards. Um it's so a very different approach to Malifaux where you have your own deck and, um, and right. you're going through the whole turn. In Moonstone, it's a shared deck and it's really small. It's only 21 cards and you shuffle it after each time it's being used. But when you're doing magic, you basically have a, uh, a special bluffing mechanic. So your ability will say what kind of color you're looking for. So the deck is made up of green, pink, and blue cards and a small number of catastrophe cards where disastrous things happen, like your gun explodes and stuff like that. So you're looking for, let's say you're firing a, um, a crossbow. You might be looking for a green card. Um, the numbers on the cards are one, two, or three. And the ability might say, for example, in a crossbow that you do 2x damage. So if you play a green 2, you do 4 damage. So far, so simple, I suppose, because you right. just play a card, oh, I've gone 4 damage. Where it gets interesting is you draw a hand of cards equal to your arcane stat. You choose a card, if you wish, you can always bin your hand if you don't like it. You choose a card, you play it face down, and you declare what it is, and you don't have to tell the truth. And your opponent then has to kind of study their own hand and look at your face and work out whether to just accept the damage. So just like poker, if they accept it, you don't show your hand. You just They just take the damage. Uh, or they have to call your bluff. Um, if they call your bluff, you have to reveal the card. If you were telling the truth, you get to go again with the remaining cards in your hand. So you can get like critical damage by kind of stacking up more and more cards. If you yeah. were caught out and you were lying, then they get to swap your card with one of the ones from their hand. So they might change the effect, and they might change the effect to something really bad, um, which is where the catastrophes right. come in. So they might just change it for a mess, or they might change it for a, an explosion or something terrible. So there's 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 um, there's constant kind of player agency because you're even if you've got a terrible hand, you can bluff it. And there's ways nice. some people are great at this. Um, I find um, <laughs> I find girls are particularly good at this side of the game. Um, so you might use little like social cues in your face or little oh, disappointments or, or whatever to kind of <laughs> card, um, get a card through. But um, so that's kind of a mini game that you play every now and then when you're doing magic or spells or, or whatever. Um, and there is another mini game that also uses a custom um, uh, deck of cards um, for Malie. And it's a different uh, game. Uh, this one is more akin to like a rock, paper, lizard, Spock kind of um, uh, game. When you engage someone with Malie, 
uh, assuming you're both within equal range of one another, so you've both got, uh, you know, you might have a two-inch range and with a sword and the other person's got a, I know, a hammer or whatever, and that's a two-inch range. Assuming you're both within range, you can both deal damage. So the person who is the attacker gets a bit of a bonus. They get two extra cards, which is useful, but it doesn't mean you can just go in and attack anyone. You have to pick your battles right. carefully. You have, you each draw um, 100 cards. You get a number of cards equal to your melee stat. The more skillful you are, obviously, the more cards you get, the more options. And you pick one of your moves. And your opponent does the same. And when you say, okay, we're ready, you both declare your cards simultaneously. And the cards themselves say on them what happens in that particular matchup. So you, um, let's say I do a falling swing. This is one of the six moves that's available to me. And you choose a high guard. You would look on your card uh, and you would find where it says falling swing. And it will tell you exactly what happens in that in that combination. And, I, and my card will say exactly the same. It'll give me the same, info, right. uh, same info. And basically what happens in that combination is I've done a falling swing. You've perfectly defended it because you chose just the right defense. Uh, and you uh, reduce all my damage to nil and you now get a free hit on me. So you get to play another card from your hand. So you nice. extended my high guard and now you come back in with a thrust of your own. So sometimes even as the defender, if you can predict what your opponent's going to do, you can completely turn the tables on them. Sometimes. Question about this time real quick. Now, is this similar to the arcane mechanic where it is a shared deck? Yeah, it is. It's a shared deck. It's again, it is. only okay. 18 cards. So right. your hand, and they're all unique. They're not unique. There's six, there's three different copies of, uh, six different cards. So you can looking at your own hand, particularly if you're a skilled fighter with a very big hand, can give you information about what your opponent doesn't have. That, that's where I was headed. Yep. Let's say you're a skilled fighter with nine cards and there's only 18 cards in the deck and you've got all three yep. of the high guards. You know they can't possibly defend your falling swing. That's one right. of the ways that you can... You can um, there's one of the bits of information that you have to make your decision. Also, different kinds of attack are better for different characters because different characters have got certain weapons that give bonuses to certain attacks or armors against certain kinds of attack. Um, and finally, every character has on the back of their um, character card a signature move. So every single nice. character has one of the six different melee moves that is their best move. If they play that one, they can actually... Uh, it, flip their stat card over and basically upgrade it so maybe they do extra damage or maybe they get to do a move at the end of the action or maybe they kick you in the balls and take all your energy off you or <laughs> something like that every every character has a, a basically a special attack that's theirs but because every character's got a special attack um you as the opponent know that they're quite likely to play that card so maybe you deliberately choose the card that's best against their best card, but maybe they know that you know that. So they're actually <laughs> going to play a different card that's really good against the defense that was really good against theirs. And you get into... So these... I know that you know that I know that yeah. you know that I know. <laughs> exactly. And you get into these mind games or... Um, there's a depth to it that just basically never ends. You know, you can't solve this. You can be playing this for yeah. five years, 
and still be kind of agonizing over every single round of Malie going, I think he's going to do this, but if he doesn't, oh, you know. Um, but there, what's this neat about it for me, Tom, because it fits, it fits when we're going to talk about the world in just a second, but there's, there's a certain level of, and I'm trying to think of the word I want here. Um, not lightness to it, but um, there's something casual about this to me, which is lighthearted, I think is what I'm thinking of, you know, where, where it, it is, it's not, you know, buckle down, heads down, everybody's rolling dice and picking up dice and you take those models off. I take those models off. There's, there's a play happening, right. At a different level, which I think is, it really it, kind of fits the, it fits the aesthetic. It's, it's very clever. People are noisy when they play Moonstone because you play your hand of cards and then the opponents go, no, because they think, you know, they were, think they were agonizing. Like, do I do this? Um, you know, so, so it's got that kind of explosive um, yeah. uh, element to it. But it's, it, you know, like I said, the, you're not rolling dice. So if it goes wrong, it's your fault. You could have played the other right. card that would have defended. Yeah. Um, and also there's a, there's a kind of a humor um, to, uh, you know, to the game. You know, like um, some of the signature moves are like the, the Vicious Midget's got his uh, signature move, which is called the Groin Tickler where he kind of runs up between your legs and stabs up. Uh, and, um, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's too many examples, but sure. nothing about Moonstone takes itself too seriously. I want the rules to be clean and unambiguous, but I want the flavor layer to be playful. Um, and I think, I think we've achieved that. Well, it's um, it's that's something that you get a little bit of in Malifaux. Um, uh, the the naming of the of the abilities in Malifaux do have a similar sense of humor, and it, it adds a lot to the game. But but that's kind of where it stops a little bit. You have taken it much farther. I'm I'm I'm, I'm gronking what you're saying. Like I'm getting I'm getting these little mini games and understanding them. But um, you know, as I'm interviewing you in the back of my head, I'm like, ooh, I wonder what I would do that. I wonder what I would do this. I could see this really becoming something that you would get lost in, and that's a good thing. Uh, and that's that's why we play these games, right? So as soon as we win or lose, we can immediately go, this is what I would have done different. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you you can you can definitely go for a pint after a game of Moonstone and exactly. digest the hell out of it. You know, if only I'd done this, it would have, and, and I love it when games end up really close, you know, when you've, when you've got, got had a back and forth and you've agonized and it's come down to the very last activation and it's coming down to this agonizing hand of melee and your, your sweat is beading down your brow. Cause you know, if you play the wrong card, you're going to die and drop your Moonstone. But if you play the right card, you're going to, you, you know, um, so I think what I what I don't always like is I don't like like I think Guild Ball is an amazing game. Really, really like it. But sometimes in Guild Ball you can know like someone's exact threat range. You know, oh I cannot go within ten inches. Or you know exactly within a tolerance how much damage you're going to do. Oh, if Ball goes in and he's fully stacked, he's going to do approximately seven, maybe five to nine damage or whatever. And you can kind of, you can sort of see exactly what's going to happen, which you can't. Solve the game. You can't in Moonstone. You, you cannot know. If you go into combat, you cannot know if it's going to work out really well for you. It's your fault or your, you know, it's your decisions whether it's going to. But you might go in with your heavy hitter 
and somebody just plays the perfect rounds of defense and you know and you've done nothing and suffered a few wounds for you for your effort and and likewise with the kind of the threat range thing it's something that i wanted to not be such an easily solvable thing so in moonstone um we have reaction steps so you have a certain number of energy counters on your character uh, and you generally spend them within your own activation to perform actions. But in response to any opponent's action, one of your characters can move one inch at a cost of one energy. That's fascinating. So let's say I have one of my heavy hitters coming in towards you, and I've got a two-inch melee range, and you've got a one-inch melee range, and I've positioned myself um, two inches away from you. If you do nothing... I get to hit you and you cannot damage me back. So you're only right. going to be playing defensive cards because the defense, there are defensive cards that will mitigate damage, but it's bad for you. Yep. You've got two choices. You could spend your one energy to step away so that I don't get to make my melee attack because you did that before I got to make my melee attack in response to my jog action. In which case, maybe I have to now spend another energy stepping in again. You spend another right. energy stepping away. And let's say you're a fairy with five energy and I'm a giant. You're happy because I yeah. just wasted all my energy chasing you. You still got three energy left to blast me with a spell at the end of the turn. But maybe let's say you're, um, you're a rogue and you've got a dagger and, and an enemy is stepping into you and they're two inches away and you've only got a one inch melee range. Maybe you run away or maybe you step in. Because you've got a plan. You know you're going to pull your signature move and you're going to hamstring them so they can't move for the rest of the turn and that's going to defend your moonstone over there. So there's, you can never completely, you can't just look at the board and go, oh, uh, I cannot move within 10 inches of that guy or I'll be dead. But you're, you're always, you never know what your opponent's going to do. Are they going to flee from you when you try and attack them or are they going to stand their ground? Um, so here's here's my take on this, Tom, as, as I'm starting to digest this, um, and this is going to end up being a big compliment to you, so get ready. It sounds to me like, and I haven't played yet, but I, what, everything you're saying making is making sense, and everything you're saying does what 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 is um does to me when i come across good mechanics is it gets my wheels turning and i start going through the permutations and how they interact with each other in my head and that's what's happening right now it sounds to me like you have come up with a much more elegant way to do what infinity is trying to do um infinity is trying in their mechanics to create this constant contact constant decision making and ebb and flow and unfortunately as much as i have tried I, I, it's just too complicated. It's just too much and in infinity, but everything that you're saying gives me that feeling where, where even when my opponent is moving, I can save stones or save energy. I'm sorry. And, and make it so, you know, I can react to that, but it's not overly complicated. This is a very fascinating idea. It's, it's an amazingly simple rule. Um, but there's tons and tons of flexibility and options around it. I don't want, I want to know that when it's my activation, I'm I'm mostly doing the stuff. Um, right. I don't want my opponent to necessarily interrupt me and perform complex actions during my activation, but I yeah. want them to have some degree of reactivity, like uh, the the smallest amount that achieves their the goal of allowing them to either evade me or 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 not. Basically, depending on what their plans are for the turn. So it's a simple 
very simple reactivity rule, probably the simplest of the reactivity rules that I've seen in other games. But it yeah, it's does a lot super simple, but it's there's an elegance there, man. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy with that. That was that was something that came kind of midway through the the design process, and it lit the game on fire when I kind of introduced that. That's great. So, um, as people are playing this, Tom, um, what are what are the what are the mechanics that get the most praise? So what do people tend to talk about the most? Or when you hear people selling the game to other people, what do, what do they tell people about it mechanically? So where do you feel like the people playing this game think it shines? The people who play this game and play it regularly would all, without any doubt, say that the melee is the best part of the game. Interesting. It's also the hardest part to teach because it's the most different from any other game. Right. Um, it's easier to demo the um, the arcane mechanic, the bluffing mechanic. Um, it's fun. The arcane mechanic is definitely fun, um, but it doesn't have quite as much uh, depth and playability as the melee mechanic. So I think every I would probably say everybody who plays Moonstone either gravitates towards uh, an enjoyment of. Um, melee and we'll take like a um, quite an aggressive troop or they uh, gravitate more towards some of the combo uh, sides of the game because some of the troops have very intricate uh, sequences of uh, abilities that you can kind of chain reaction into some really mad and awesome effects um, so there's there are lots of different ways to play this game you you, I probably should say how you win. I don't think I've mentioned it yet. We've talked about it a little bit, so but yeah, let's go ahead and lay it out. You, you, um, there are no victory points in a typical game for killing people. The, um, the there is one kind of core scenario that is the competitive scenario that everything is balanced around, and then I have also made a whole load of story scenarios that are more narrative driven and they've got different win conditions and things like that and you, you, you read a bit of narrative and then you play as the characters in the narrative and, and so on but the kind of the competitive version of the game you you win by collecting the most moonstones at the end of turn four and that's it there's no points for killing people so you can take different strategies you can take a strategy of grabbing the stones and running away although the game doesn't make it too easy to do that because it, it's not interactive and it would be boring if that happened too right. often. But it is possible if you are an absolute master at sequencing your actions and your combos just right, and literally only know like one person who can actually do this really well, um, and even then, you know, not not reliably. But or right. maybe you choose to ignore the moonstones and you try and murder everyone and then at the end of the game you just pick up one stone ta-da I'm the winner um, so yeah that, that's well and, you know the, I like games where you don't get points from killing because the reality is is every skirmish game I've ever come across there's a benefit to killing the opposing team's models that's built into the game so you can have it then stacking points on top of that just 
snowballs it. It makes it the only thing that matters. Um, and I think games like yours um, and uh, Malifaux does this as well in, in, in the most part is it says, okay, that's already a given. That's already an advantage. We don't have to then give points for it. Um, let's make things a lot more interesting. That sounds like what you're doing. Um, I'd be curious though, um, how long is your typical match with two people that know the rules? Um, so when we run tournaments, we do 90 minute rounds with five models. Great. Um, and, um, that works great. I would say, um, about 5% of games don't finish. Uh, and, wow. um, that's really good. I would say probably half of the games are finished with at least 20 minutes to spare. Um, you know, so I think that's the optimum level for tournament play, to be honest, um, because you, I agree. you get enough kind of mental space in between uh, the games to kind of refresh and have a coffee and chat and maybe watch a couple of the ongoing games. So yeah. it's typical, I guess. One area, like I guess this is true, this is typical of other games as well. It's scalable. You choose with your opponent how many models you want to play. You say, let's do a 5v5 or a 6v6 or... If you're doing a three-player game, maybe you say, let's do 5v5v5. Basically, um, there isn't really a minimum or a maximum, but in practice, people tend to gravitate towards 6v6 for casual games. It lasts, you know, about two hours with some, right. with some um, chats, um, as long as you know the rules. Uh, and then for tournaments, we break it down to five because it just makes the list building so agonizing when you've only got five choices and you really, <laughs> yeah. really wish you had that sixth choice and it could yeah. really because list building again is kind of as i said earlier on if you have ambiguity in a rule set i consider that the fault of the designer if you have a situation where you want to make a certain list and other people are going to look at you like you've got something on your shoe because you've done something wrong, that is also the fault of the designer. That yeah. You should never, ever feel, oh, I won't take this because it's, it's too cheesy or it's too powerful. You need to make sure that the game has counters to everything. So sure, right. you can go for an all giants list and have like these loads of wounds and this really, really strong um, list that's going to dominate the center field. But I can just um, bring in from my sideboard an airship that's going to float above your head and shoot you and you can't hit it. Um, yep. Because you've gone all in on one strategy. It allows me to optimize my uh, my sideboard to counter it. Um, whereas someone who's gone for a mixed list, um, you know, with an equal amount of support characters and healers and melee characters and ranged, you can't so much, you know, they haven't like put all their eggs in one basket, but you can't so much uh, like hose them with a certain right. Uh, counter as well it, it in some ways um like games like clash royale and league of legends have got that kind of vibe you know where everything is equal um there are some super synergies which work really sweet together um but there's also um really good counters um so basically everything you know um yeah yeah no that's that's interesting and, and it's um it sounds like it's not just about balance within the list but balance within the model right that every model has its strengths and its weaknesses and by you know i might have a giant versus a fairy but it sounds like one of the things is that my giant has two energy and my fairy has five energy and and that plays out we even talked about a movement scenario where the fairy is going to come out ahead 
absolutely. And that's when you're getting into the tactics side of things because ideally the giant, uh, the fairy wants to go second in the activation order in that matchup. Right. Um, if the fairy player is greedy and they run forwards and spend all of their energy digging up a moonstone, then they're now exposed and the giant can come in and wallop them. Um, they have some defenses still, but it's bad times, basically, if that happens. So there's there's just kind of a an endless uh, back and forth, I guess, both in list building and in the decisions that you're making in the game. And I, I, I think it's in a really healthy position. I, I go back again to the playtesters. I've had some really, really clever brains, um, you know, that have been kind of trying all these characters out a good year or two before anyone else sees them and thank you know thankfully there there's always kind of something that you can do to, to counter your opponent's move that's good that's good so guys we're going to take another break when you get back from this break i want to get an idea of what came next and it sounds like as we were building the mechanics the time was kind of piecing this all together he had some art styles in mind he had a feeling in mind but moonstone as a world didn't exist so let's talk about how that developed we'll be right back Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com. That's with one M. Or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T-H-I-R-D-F-L-O-O-R-F-R-I-E-N-D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So now that we got, you know, a little bit of the of the wrenches and bolts and we get a and I, I didn't lie to you. I told you that this is a very unique game. But if you were like me uh, listening, your wheels are already turning. But I, I, the thing that struck me, Tom, when, when I first started exploring this was the models and just the feel because it uh and i couldn't put my finger on it and as soon as you said the artist from labyrinth i'm like that's it that's the feeling and look i get from looking at this um let's talk about from a fluff perspective and i think maybe the first thing to kind of dig into this is to kind of understand what the different factions or different armies are and and both aesthetically and mechanically yeah absolutely so um it's, obviously, it's a difficult thing to to do in a podcast to kind of talk about the aesthetics, but hopefully... You just got to go to the website, guys. Just trust me. It, it's really neat. It's a fairy tale aesthetic. So this isn't Tolkien-esque um, orcs and it's not Games Workshop with the spikes and skulls everywhere. There's a kind... There's a sort of a sweetness to it. There can be some dark parts, but it's... You know, it's not chibi cute, but it's it's it's. If you've watched the film The Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal, you're kind of gonna be on the right track. It's got that kind of vibe. This isn't this isn't total war. The the humans and the goblins and the gnomes they 
they coexist. You know, if you imagine a world where you have different races and maybe there's a little bit of racism, maybe they kind of trust their own race a bit more and think that the goblins are going to, you know, the goblin cobbler is probably a bit shifty and going to, you know, do a bad job or whatever. They have their prejudices, but they, they coexist. You know, they live in cities together. It's a reasonably peaceful place you know they're making they're having their little village fairs and they're you know going to the tavern together and you know the giants and the goblins are having drinking contests and it's it's that kind of it's kind of warm and cozy if you um if you ever played the dungeon keeper computer game i don't know if you've heard of that um and there's the, there's the heroes and it's all rosy and it's a little bit it's a little bit like that you know rolling hills and beautiful yep. landscapes and um there are some darker undertones there are some people pulling strings in the background there are these wizards who live in the tower of grommel who are the ones that are collecting the moonstones um and they are pretty shady um if you <laughs> if you imagine the skexis from um from uh, dark crystal you kind of onto the right kind of lines with those um but these magic stones have been growing up out of the ground and everybody's loving it because they can dig them up, take them to the wizards. They get in these lovely payouts. Everybody's happy for the time being. We'll see what happens in, in the book because things uh, move on, let's say. But uh, <laughs> at the moment, it's all rosy countryside. So we, we basically have three factions in Moonstone at the moment. I have a fourth faction in mind and I will be working on it um, after after our current Kickstarter, but at the moment we've got the Commonwealth, which is primarily made up of humans, gnomes, and giants. We've got the Dominion, which is primarily made up of fairies, goblins, and trolls. And we have the Leshevolt, who are um, mostly fauns and spirits. But it's not really, they're not really divided based on their race. What actually happened was the um, the this world of Torba, which is the name of the island that everybody lives on, going back several centuries, was a um, a fairly war torn place, you know, tribal, uh, and a particularly powerful human king um, kind of stamped out all of the the tribes and kind of created a. Uh, a dominion um so this dominion which is now mostly made up actually of goblins and fairies who associated with this was actually a human thing at one point um but he was a particularly cruel leader um and um the gnomes got particularly affronted by the extremely high price of taxes on tea cakes um nice. and they began to lead a revolt um <laughs> people's revolt and the human peasants all kind of swelled to the cause and there was a period of civil war where the commonwealth wanted like freedom and fair fairness for the common you know for the common gnome uh, and um they never quite fully resolved their civil war the commonwealth never overpowered the dominion what happened is the wizards who loved to manipulate and, and they they loved this uh power in passe they kind of stepped right. in, brokered a piece, said, "Look, you guys, you can create your um, your your negotiating chamber. You both have representatives. We'll judge. We'll we'll make the decisions. We'll judge. We'll you know." Um, so you've got these two effectively like political factions, um, 
And it tends to be that certain races more often gravitate to one or the other, but it's not exclusive. We do have right. other Dominion humans who are these grandiose, almost like vampirish type people that were once all powerful and haven't been able to accept these uprising of the rabble, still cling on to the Dominion in their ramshackle mansions and sneak out at night. So um, the, the the fluff is quite it, it's it's too. Too in depth, I guess, to go into um, on a podcast. But what, what, what? Um, I, I guess what I would love to get a feel for is 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 how it was developed. So, I mean, I'm hearing some things familiar. I'm hearing some things that are are mashups of stuff I've heard. I, I, I'd be curious to know, Tom, like when looking back on it, when did it start to form, and 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 where did that where did that form come from in your mind? I think this side of things is the side that took the longest to develop. Yeah. I kind of approached this game um, very much with a mechanic and a visual approach. I knew I wanted characters that looked like this. And, um, and then I started to kind of, I worked with a few different, um, different writers and had lots of meetings and kind of allowed it to evolve over a period of, um, of a couple of years, the stories wow. that are in the current um, published rulebook are just kind of a collection of, of small stories that give you a flavour from the little the little different villages and different places. It's not kind of a story that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Mm-hmm. As you move into our second book, the book which is on Kickstarter currently when this airs, um, it's that's when some of these things have really solidified and you start to kind of have a progression and you know you know where things are going and there's a, a bit of an undertone to it. So, um, yeah, it's it's been fun working my way through this uh, kind of narrative journey and fleshing out all of the details and it's getting kind of richer and richer as time goes on. That's great. So well, let's go ahead and talk about the uh, the book that's on Kickstarter as as this drops. Uh, so for those of you that are listening, you know, relatively uh, soon after I release the episode, um, if they go to Kickstarter, what are they going to see? So right now, I think if this is published um, during the period of the fifth to the fourteenth of June, then there will be a Moonstone Kickstarter for our first major expansion and by that i mean a book uh primarily in the way that uh Malifaux brought out it's you know i can't remember what it's called now twisted fates and right yeah it's wave books yeah, yeah. yeah so there's a whole load of new characters some of them have already been released some of them haven't um but you get all the the backstories um there's a whole load more of the story scenarios that i mentioned so you kind of read a bit of narrative and then you play out a few scenes and then the narrative carries on. Um, the main, there's also a few little, um, uh, like more in-depth nitty gritty parts on the rules. So nice. let's say um, really obscure things that come up occasionally, like really weird interactions with terrain, you know, it kind of covers like, okay, if this thing that happens once in a hundred games happens, this is what you do. I, re- I wrote it down. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> And but the main the main thrust of it is a campaign system. So um, Moonstone uh, has not got a campaign system at the moment until this book comes out, and people have been asking for one. And I've been spending two years working on it, and it's uh, actually quite a challenge to make a good 
campaign system. I, I'll be very anxious, this Tom, to, to read this because um, you were talking about it with Blood Bowl, and I have said this several times. Campaign systems is what everybody wants in miniature games until they get it, and then it's terrible. <laughs> so I'd be very anxious. You talked about potentially solving it a little bit in, in your Blood Bowl League. Um, I'd be very curious at a high level understanding what, what you put together here. Yeah, so I've, I've actually tackled this problem twice because the blood bowl um experience and then um, my friend's game was a was built as a campaign game from the ground up that um, gotcha. so um the, the important thing is when you go into your game you don't want to feel like it's a foregone conclusion you want to feel that you have a fair chance to win um so the moonstone campaign has progression in the form of upgrade cards you get extra, you get upgrade cards, everybody does at the end of each game, and you get extra characters to add to your sideboard. So your your troop is growing and it's gaining in skills and you're developing new combos. But that's not tied to how well you're doing in the game. You get the progression whether you're doing badly or not. Um, there is, what makes the Moonstone campaign, um, I think, different is... So you know how I love my games within games. You know, Moonstone is a, is a skirmish game, but then it's got these card games inside of it. Well, there's now a new layer to the onion on the outside. So when you're not playing Moonstone at all, there's a new game that I've developed, which is um, has kind of a betting mechanic. So you, uh, when you're playing the campaign, you are one of these wizards in the Tower of Grommel, these evil, creepy guys that are collecting the Moonstones, and you're hiring a troop of characters to go out and get the stones for you. But you have what's called a machinations phase. So let's say between, let's say your group plays once a week on a Wednesday night. Thursday through Tuesday, you are playing uh, like a little sub game um, where you're able to support or sabotage the other players. Um, and if you support someone, uh, they get more cards in their games. So we have these campaign cards, which give you you, you know bonuses like extra heals and moves and things like right. that. So if you support someone, they get more cards. Um, if you sabotage someone, they get less cards. If you support someone and they win, um, you get a little kickback from that. And if you sabotage someone and they lose, you, um, you, you, you're punished. But if you support someone who's already doing really well, the kickback is virtually non-existent. <laughs> whereas if you support someone who's doing badly at the moment the kickback is really strong so there's, there's, a, clever. there's, there's an incentive to self-regulate a rubber banding me mechanism where yeah. the players themselves give support in theory because it's political and you're not forced to you can make deals you can say to people like oh you know if you support me i'll support you um and and just like everything else in moonstone there's secret information you know you can make your you can publicly declare that you're going to do one thing and then secretly, you know, do something. like different. diplomacy yeah, in the game. Yeah. So, so that's how I've sort of solved that puzzle in a sense. Not only are you going into every game on an equal footing, if you're currently doing badly in the campaign, you should actually be going in with a, with an advantage or a slight advantage. Hopefully not always see how nice the other players are to you, but you're usually the concept, Tom, of a catch-up mechanic is not new. What is interesting to me here is, is that there's agency within the league to 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 incentivize a catch-up mechanic um, and to create its own little mini game around it. That's very interesting, my friend. Very interesting. 
Yeah, it took a while. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> I think it took longer to do the campaign system than the actual game rules. To oh, be that's honest. funny. But this is one of the good things about being a, a, a kind of an independent publisher and not having shareholders is I'm able to um, release things when I'm happy with them um, rather than having to hit particular release schedules. So the campaign rules has been through um, much more iterations and revisions actually than the core rules did. Um, but you, you, I've said this before, you can make a game worse. You, not everything you release makes it better. Um, and particularly when you've got something that's ticking along really nicely and has got a, like a really nice balance to it, you, you need to be careful to make sure everything you're introducing is is going to improve improve it, basically. So. Yeah, more, more isn't always better, right? And it um, and things can bloat can get out of hand uh, from a rules perspective very, very easily. Um, and we can get a little too clever for ourselves sometimes and kind of lose sight um, of, of the core ideas. And it sounds like you're doing your best to, to keep that lined up. So here's my big question. Uh, go ahead, Tom. I, I was just going to say on that bloat issue, I completely agree. And one of the kind of things that I've tried to do to mitigate against that is to ring fence these cards for campaign mode. So oh, if you nice. want to play a tournament, they are not, you know, you don't have to worry about them. If you and your buddies are really into Moonstone and you want that extra layer of depth and it builds game on game, you know, you get one extra upgrade per game. So it gives you time right. to kind of wrap your head around it. Because I, I remember when Malifaux moved to second edition, I was a little bit overwhelmed by the yeah. options. And I just, it's it's great, but I wanted to make sure that it was there for people when they want it rather than something they feel they had to do or had to learn. That's, that's very cool. So Tom, for people listening here, um, and I'm sure there's many people listening that, that are interested in your game and don't have it. What, where, what is a good place to start? So if I tomorrow say, you know what, I'm going to have, uh, I'm going to teach Tom how to play Moonstone tomorrow. Where, where would I go and what would I pick up? So we have a web store, which is shop.moonstonethegame.com. And on it, we have a two-player starter set. Uh, and that is honestly the perfect place to start. It comes with two troops, uh, a human and a goblin troop, all of the stack cards, all of the movement widgets and card decks that you need, everything apart from terrain, um, basically. And embarrassingly, I've forgotten the price of it, but it's about, I think it's about £60, £65. Okay. So, you know, whatever that is, $90, I don't know, something along those lines. Um, but, you know, you buy the one box, um, you can um, you can play a full game. Um, it's got the rule, rules pamphlet. It's got like a 16. It's got, so all of our rules, one thing I, I didn't mention, um, fits into a 16-page pamphlet. So we have a rule book, which is 100-odd pages, that's got all of the narrative and stuff. But the core rules are quite simple. And all of the... Um, all of the characters' abilities are printed directly on the cards. So you never have to flick through the book because that's another bugbear that I have. But you could, anyway, I'm going off track. The rules are freely available on our website. So if you don't want to spend anything, you can just go to moonstonethegame.com, go to downloads. You can download the 16-page uh, rule book and the paper standees and all of the cards and print them out yourself. That's absolutely that's fine. Um, but if you do want to buy the box set and have everything, you can just try it out. Um, that's on our web store. 
And Tom, for people that go over to the Kickstarter after they get done listening to this, is there a way, do you have add-ons so that I could get um, stuff that's already been released as part of my Kickstarter? Um, or is it only, or can I only get the, 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 the new book? No, I very much plans the Kickstarter with um, uh, like new players in mind. So Good. there's a whole range of catch-up pledges. So you Beautiful. get the new things, uh, the new and exclusive items, the limited edition models and stuff from the Kickstarter, the new book, and then a range of different catch-ups. If you just want all the new stuff and a starter set, there's that pledge, which is not too expensive with a small discount. If you want to, let's say you you really like the goblins and you want all of our goblins and all the new and exclusive stuff, there's a pledge level for that with a discount. So it's perfect timing to be That's honest great. if anybody wanted to kind of jump in now. That's beautiful. So, Tom, I'm going to have links to all of that um, here in the show notes. Um, if for some reason, um, and if you're out there and you did not listen to this when it first came out, shame on you. You shouldn't have taken so long to listen to this. But that inevitably happens. People that are going to uh, listen to this after the Kickstarter's closed, um, I would assume that this book in some form is going to be available for retail afterwards, right? It will. Yeah, the book will uh, The book will go to, um, to retail. I am... Um, uh, hoping that we will upgrade the Kickstarter version to a, a hardback for the Kickstarter backers, but it will be exactly the same book other than, other than the hardback. Um, the, there will be some limited edition models in the Kickstarter that won't make it to retail, but the, the book and the, and the, uh, the campaign cards will, will hit retail. Um, hopefully not too far away. W- when I've done previous Kickstarters, um, it's quite stressful when you've got... 500 people's money and you owe them something so i've done like most of the work almost all of the work in advance this time you know the book is almost finished just need to proofread it and do a few kind of final bits and pieces so before the end of the year we should have this kind of stuff at retail as well well you beat me to my last question when i have people on the show that are involved in kickstarters i i ask them what what's what condition is in everything in now and it sounds like to me that you're you're dotting dotting i's and crossing t's at this point yeah, and it's for my own sanity as much as anything yeah. else. Um, it's enormously stressful. But, you know, it's horrible if you've upset one person, never mind 500 people. So, <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yeah, every, everything, you know, the molds are made. The, the book is written from, from page one to page 176. It's quite a big book, actually. Um, it just needs, like, an editor, a little bit of... Um, play testing on some of the, you know, it, it's nearly there. Some photography drops in on a few pages. You know, it's, it's in that state, like 90% done. The mechanics are interesting to me, Tom. Um, you, you've caught my interest. Uh, the world is very interesting to me. And part of it is because you're hitting my childhood soft spot as a huge fan of like Labyrinth and and Dark Crystal and, and kind of that um, Brothers Grimm fairy tale with a little bit of, of a dark side to it, but oh, not yeah. a grim, not a grim dark side, you know, like, like a 40 K and I'm going to ask you a question, which I didn't put in our uh, show notes. So this is going to come at you sideways and all my guests always have the option of saying, Craig, I'm not going to answer that question. So now that I've given you that huge buildup, when am I going to be able to role play in Moonstone? I am so glad you asked me that question because we're, uh, it's, it's on the roadmap. It, it, I mean, when you were telling me about the world, I'm not going to lie to you, Tom. That's the first thing I thought. I was like, this sounds like a really cool role-playing game, too. Yeah, 100%. Um, so I'm also planning a board game and a role-play game. 
for, for Moonstone. So the board game will shift more towards kind of even simpler, more kind of mass market play with your family kind of thing. And then obviously the RPG um, will just allow you to kind of go to town in this world that we've created because I do think it's got a lot of appeal to, you know, it, it's got that nostalgic effect and it's quite unique. And I think I think a role-play game will work really well. So I don't have a timeline for it, but just know that it's it's... It, I'm, I do believe it will happen, and it's being worked on. And I've got a writer lined up and and stuff, so it's. Uh... Yeah, that doesn't surprise me, Tom. I had a feeling that was going to be your answer because it um it seemed like a a, a a logical next step, as rich and as fun as this world sounds. So that's great, um, Tom. Uh, it, it was a huge favor to me for you to come on today. Um, I really enjoyed our conversation, and um, you've gotten me excited. And I'm, I'm I would anticipate there's a few people listening that got excited. Um, I'm going to have links to everything, including the Kickstarter and your website, in the show notes. Um, outside of those two things, is there any other place where people should get uh, more Tom or more Moonstone? Oh, yeah, we're on all of the socials. So if you go to Facebook uh, slash Moonstone the game, um, if you search for Moonstone game on Twitter, we have Moonstone on YouTube. So there's quite a few uh, like how to play videos and things on YouTube. Um, yeah, we're, we're all over the place. If you search for Moonstone game, you'll find us. Um, and that actually reminds me of my last question. I feel bad. I was wrapping up the interview and I forgot my last question. Um, on your YouTube channel, you've got a video and on that video, you've got uh, one of your demo boards, which is kind of like this winter themed, like really just elaborate board. And I was wondering if you had already had time to pack that up and ship it over to me yet or if you, have, <laughs> if you haven't had a chance to yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I. That's a pretty board, my friend. It has been an absolute dream come true, to be honest, of running a games company, getting to have these things that I, as a child, I, you know, and as a, as a younger person, I just looked at these things and just fantasized over and never thought I would have. But I've got three really beautiful Moonstone boards now that are one of my other. Gorgeous. I'm, I'm blessed with some brilliant friends because I've got another friend oh, who fun. loves making terrain. Uh, he's a brilliant painter of miniatures but his real passion is making boards and he's he made that mountainous board for me it is so full of details if you lift up the mountain unbelievable if you lift up the mountain there's a cave in like a mine inside (laughs) all of the uh all of the mountains have got little faces carved into them you know like that scene from the labyrinth There's, there's little tiny postage stamp size posters uh of like wanted posters that are stuck on all the buildings it's amazing. And his other board that you might not have seen yet is a fairy forest. And he's made all of these oh, fairy wow. tree houses. And they're, again, like they're all internal design. Um, you know, one of the fairy, there's uh, one of our fairies is called Wasp. And he's a glade guard. Um, and he's made Wasp's barracks. And it's like a wasp's nest. And if you lift off the lid, you can see his little bunk bed. And he's got a little picture oh, of one goodness. of the other female fairies as like a, um, you know, like, like a pinup, like a pinup on by his bed. It's just the amount That's of details phenomenal. that this guy puts into these things. I can, I can just study them for hours. It's wonderful. Yeah, I'm gonna link you specifically to that video because I was just like, you know, I don't care if this game's good or not. I like that board. I want to play that board. <laughs> it's really cool. Um, so that's great. All right, guys. Um, like I said, everything's in the show notes, including uh, we'll have all of the socials and everything in there, and a link to that video so you can see the board that I've been coveting. Uh, that's in Tom's house. Um, but uh, Tom, like I said, thanks again for coming on, my friend. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. 
All right. And for those of you that sat around all the way to the end listening, I appreciate you too. Take care. Hey, did you hear that? You leveled up. You finished another episode of Tabletop Talk from Third Floor Wars. If you want more from the third floor, follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Head on over to our YouTube channel. It is packed with painting tutorials, gaming tips, battle reports, and role-playing actual plays. Did you enjoy this episode? Why don't you send a link to one of your friends so they can enjoy it too? Last but not least, write us a review on your podcatcher of choice. This helps us find listeners almost as cool as you. We're doing pretty good on time, Tom. What cool. I might do is kind of bleed these last two segments together, if that's all right with you. Yeah, what are the last two again? So the, what have we got? The World of Moonstone and what's coming? And then the... Yep. Oops, yeah. Yeah, cool. Yep. We I, think it'll, I think it'll blend blend nicely. We didn't talk about the factions. Were you thinking about... Um, I was thinking of doing that here. Would that be in a like an aesthetic sense or in a gameplay sense? So what I'm thinking is when we talk about the uh, the world of Moonstone, I think that we want to talk about, um, you know, obviously the setting and things like that. But um, what are what are the factions and, and how, how do they look and feel yeah. both aesthetically and and on the table? Right. And I think we can kind of kind of cover them um, to give people a feel of kind of a range um, of, of what's available. How does that sound? Perfect. Awesome. All right. I'll bring us back. All right. That was great, Tom. Cool. Yeah. All right. So next, the kind of way I broke this down is the first part is going to get into the design process. And obviously things like the world are going to come up, the mechanics are going to come up. But um, I think it's interesting to focus on how it was made first, and then we'll go deeper later into mechanics that yeah. deeper later into the world. Yeah. Does, yeah, does that sound good? absolutely fine. Beautiful. All right. I'll bring us back. Are you still here? Look, uh, the podcast is over. And you sat through all of the breaks and bloopers? Well, I mean, if you're here, you might as well run over to patreon.com and become a supporter. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast too while you're at it, on whatever platform you're listening to. I do appreciate you sticking around. Take care.